Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Thank you, Jesus, for leading us in prayer, reading of God's Word. This morning, I'd like to ask you at this time to take your Bible, turn to the book of 2 Peter, and we're going to be looking at the third and fourth verses of chapter 1, having explored the first two verses last week. As we rapidly approach the Advent season, my mind goes toward the fact that when God chose to send His Son to the world, He did not send a political leader, nor a military leader, an economics expert, or an educational guru. Rather, He sent a Savior. You may recall when Jesus walked by John the Baptist, who was surrounded by His own disciples, He said, seeing Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul says in his letter to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 16 of that first letter to his son in the faith, he said, this is a trustworthy saying deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of which I am foremost. When we look at our world, it's a mess, isn't it? It's in chaos. Our country is in turmoil. And that is simply a microcosm of the entire population of the world. Immorality runs wild. And the question which we have is, what kind of response are we to give to such a world? A world which has things totally reversed a world which was like the world in the day of Isaiah. When he talked about people were saying, what is evil is good, and what is good, evil. My response to this question might seem a little odd to you, but we are to be people who, knowing clearly the state of the world, take inventory of ourselves. I am personally much more concerned about the state of the church of Jesus Christ than I am about the world. The way that the world will change is not by human standards, but by a movement of God's Spirit in the world. The world doesn't see this quality of life that is spoken of by Simon Peter in the first two verses. Let's take a quick review of verses 1 and 2 of the book of 2 Peter. He introduces himself by calling himself Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me take note of the fact that Simon Peter is showing great humility here. He calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jesus was his master. He was a slave of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
having received a faith just like those people to whom he wrote this letter. It's been said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, and that is so true. Peter knew who he was. He knew how prideful he was. He knew how he needed to be more humble. The picture that Peter paints for us in his introduction of himself to this group of unnamed people is one of humility. It's also one of equality. It's one of intimacy with God. The world will stand up and take notice of who God is when the world sees His nature reflected in us. We know Jesus, according to this passage of Scripture in verse 1, is our God and Savior. Make no mistake about it. Jesus was not simply a great prophet. He was not a man who was morally upright. He was not a man above men. He was that, a man above other people. But he was God as well. The Bible says that the Word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Word was in the beginning with God. He was with God, and He was God. He remains God. So we are to be people who reflect the nature of God. Is Jesus a humble person? By all means. It seems a little odd to describe our God as a humble God, but indeed He is. When He is described by Paul in the Philippian letter, this is the way the apostle writes about Him. Though being in very nature God, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking on the form of a slave, really. He enslaved himself to God the Father, and God used him mightily. The world is aching for a depiction of a body of people who think more about others than they think about themselves. This is true of us if we really understand who Jesus is and we've really yielded our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps your heart has been broken by a news story which broke earlier this month about the lead pastor of a large New York City church. This man had an affair by his own admission with a woman whom by her description he met on a lawn on the riverfront of Brooklyn, New York. And he approached her and he invited her for a drink. They went and they drank, and as time unfolded, they found themselves locked in each other's arms in an affair. And when this woman came out after he had come out about their relationship, there was no seeming bitterness in her heart. She said, I really loved Carl but I have no ill will toward him. She made mention of having gone to the church that he pastored six years previously and did not make a connection because she was one of about 8,000 people in that great arena. 
she didn't recognize him when he came and spoke to her. And when she asked his name, he simply told her his name. And as he asked, she asked him more about himself, he just said, I manage celebrities. He does, or did at least. Justin and Haley Bieber, Selena Gomez, KD, Kevin Durant, other people who are great sports figures in America and pop culture and in entertainment. And this is what she said about him when he finally revealed they'd been married 17 years and she had looked up by this time on the internet and discovered that this was in fact the pastor of that church, an 8,000 member church in upper Manhattan. She said this about him. She said, when you give much power to an individual, people look at you as if you are God. One wonders what happened to Carl that put himself in that kind of situation. Well, Carl's story is a cautionary tale to all of us, not just to people like me who are spiritual leaders, but to all of us who know Christ. Because this man was according to his lover, a victim of his church. That was her assessment. She's a Muslim. She had gone to the church to hear the gospel, but was untouched. And this is what she said. He is a victim of his church. That's not what he's a victim of. He's a victim of himself, his flesh. And I'm just as capable of such things as he is. It would be totally inexcusable for me. And it so happens because of his public image, his has become splattered all over media in the world. He has 600,000 Instagram followers. Amazing. What happened to him? Well, at some point, I believe he probably followed the Lord. But he got caught up in his own celebrity you could see it in the way he progressed or regressed, depending on your perspective. And he embraced the culture. And be careful, believers. If we embrace the culture, we're really embracing the world. We are to become all things to all men so that by all possible means we might save some. Jesus radically identified with sinners. He was a friend of sinners. But Jesus didn't become like them. Jesus tells us that we, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he says about people who are so-called pagans. He says, don't be like them. We're to be with them. We're to love them. And the church of Jesus Christ is to give a picture of what Christ is, a man of humility and a man of equality. In Christ, there is neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither free nor slave. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the elite egalitarian. Jesus is the one who brings mankind together. And he knows that he wants that for his church. Our primary business as the church is to focus our criticism on ourselves, not on the world. Revival requires... Vival, as I heard one great man of God say, 
He said, his name was Vance Havner. He said, what the church of Jesus Christ needs is vival. What was he saying? The church needs life, the life of Christ. And once we have Christ's life dominating in our presence, dominating us, we're humbling ourselves before him. He is able to accomplish what we could not accomplish in a thousand years, trying to promote ourselves, trying to be like everybody else, wanting charisma rather than character or form over substance. Think about what the prophet Isaiah said about Jesus, prophesying hundreds of years before the Messiah would come. He says in the first verse of Isaiah 53, there was nothing in his appearance that would make us desire him. We are so much about appearances, aren't we? God looks at the heart where man looks at the outward appearance. We are to be men and women who ask God to revive us. I think of the prayer of David, that great warrior king who had his own foibles, who fell prey to his own self. He wanted to be admired by women. He wanted to be admired like every human being left to himself or herself will desire. But he says this, teach me to do your will. Oh God, teach me to do your will. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For the sake of your name, oh God, revive me. We want a revival for the sake of the name of the church instead of the name of the Lord of the church. Revival is something that is focused on the person of Jesus Christ and his life in the church. So we are to be such people. David finishes that part of Psalm 143 by simply saying, I am your servant. That should be our heart as followers of Christ. What should we be striving after if this is to take place? Well, let's look at verses 2. And following grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This indicates that the Christian life is to be one that is ever-growing, that we are to be men and women, and collectively as a body of believers, we are to be people who are in the growth mode throughout the entirety of our lives. We never reach a place of stagnation if we're following Christ. We do find ourselves in those places from time to time. Perhaps you have in the last week. Certainly most of us have had some sense of stagnation over the last eight to nine months since the breakout of COVID-19. But we're not to stay there. There's never a point of final arrival in this life. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, after describing what his goal was, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. That is an admirable goal, admirable goal. But then he goes right on the heels of that to write these words. Not that I've already achieved this but I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is our opportunity to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So 
We need to know God. What is it that I should desire above all else? It's a good question. I think of what David writes in Psalm 73, 25. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And there's nothing else on earth that I desire besides you. Oh, when I read that second part, I'm good on the first part. Whom do I have in heaven but you? But I find myself, much like Carl, many times wanting to be desired, wanting to be looked at, wanting to be somebody who is admired by other people. But that is carnal thinking for sure. We are to be men and women who understand that true humility is that which has no focus about himself or herself. We don't think about ourselves. We think about the Lord and about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Knowing God. Look at verse 3. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. This is the second time that this word has been used. The word which is translated true knowledge. We saw last week that it has to do knowledge with that which is through and through knowledge. It's the most complete knowledge one can have about anything. And this is what we are invited to as followers of Jesus, to know Him with that kind of fullness and that kind of intimacy. It's not just looking after a greater experience, another experience. People run to and fro looking for another experience with God. Of His fullness, Jesus is our Savior and He is our God. But what we know is of His fullness we've all received and we need to continue to pursue more of Him by spending time with Him, listening to Him. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Is it possible for us to know God? Well, absolutely it is. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the Beatitudes, He said, Blessed the pure in heart, for they, excuse me, <clears throat> for they shall see God. We need to ask God, purify our hearts, O Lord, so that we can see You. The second thing in answer to the question, what should we as believers be striving for? First of all, knowing God. It's within our grasp if we understand what it means to be a follower of Christ, then to become like God. There's a staggering statement here in verse 4. For by these, that would be God's own glory and excellence, Jesus particularly, His own glory and excellence, by these, Jesus has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. Let me pause just a moment. The words translated granted in verse 3 when it's talking about that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Note the order, life and then godliness. Among other things, Jesus says about Himself, I am the life. Many people think by being godly and doing more good things, they're going to get life eternal. Not so. Life eternal is found in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. It's a gift. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. 
He who has the Son has life. That's the same word that is used here. Jesus, we have given everything, been given everything pertaining, pertaining, excuse me, to his life and godliness, becoming more like him. But then looking again at verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Here's the question. The question is, what is necessary to become like Christ? It's becoming partakers of the divine nature. One who shows forth the characteristics of Jesus himself. Life and godliness. What is a Christian? When you hear the term Christian, what comes to your mind? There perhaps is someone listening today who might say, well, I was christened as a baby. Another might say, I was confirmed in a church at a certain age. And then still others would say, well, I was really baptized underwater. I really am a Christian. Or some might even say, I've lived a good life. I've been kind to my fellow man. All those things are not what it means to be a true Christian. A true believer is one who shows forth, demonstrates the life of Christ. We read from Colossians chapter 1 earlier, and verse 27 is easily skipped over. It seems rather incidental, but it says this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the presence of the living Christ in me or in you. And he does give us his life. And inherent in his life being a part of our lives is the capacity to be godly people, to be men and women who are humble and treat others as at least our equal, if not better than we are, not because we have a problem with self-esteem. To the contrary, it's when we really know God that we can accept ourselves and we're free to be servants to one another. Who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest of all as far as Christ is concerned? It is the servant of all. Jesus himself demonstrated this in the upper room on the doorstep of his crucifixion, he did it. His disciples were so eaten up with their own sense of self-importance that they could not gird their loins with the towel of a servant, a slave, literally. A Jewish male would not even be permitted to do that. It was a Gentile servant who would do that to wash the dirty feet. Jesus took that towel, he took that basin, and he washed their feet. This is the spirit of Jesus Christ. This is the means by which we measure is his life in our life. A believer is certainly forgiven, but not merely forgiven. It's a tragedy what has happened to so many believers in the world, in America particularly. They are forgiven. And I don't call into question anybody's salvation if they have gone before the Lord and they've truly asked Him to forgive them. But 
a person who is a true believer is one who is a partaker of the divine nature. We have been called to be this kind of people. How do we partake of that nature? I sound like a broken record, I understand that, but I can't emphasize it enough. We become like Christ. You say, Mike, it's impossible. Do you know what you're asking me, Mike? You're a pastor. You live in an ivory tower. You're setting the standard too high. I don't set the standard. The Lord himself sets the standard. The good news is what is impossible for man is possible for him in us. Things that you battle in your life, those things that are contrary to the nature of Christ, things that are not things that you are proud of, you may even be ashamed of them, those things are things that God came into your life in the person of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit to rid you of those things, to give you power. And notice in this passage of Scripture in verse 3 again, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything, not just some things, everything to life and godliness. Yet we got the life, we got that when we received Christ as our Lord and Savior. He came to indwell us. But the godliness is another story, isn't it? It's an ongoing quest for us who know Jesus. The world as we see it, as believers, and we tend to be very critical of the world, we should not condone it. But what we need to remember is a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them has no way of understanding them because they are spiritually appraised. People without Christ, the world is without Jesus and it's filled with itself. It cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. The world is in a state of corruption, always trying to come against God. Look at this passage of Scripture, the last line of the passage we're looking at in verse 4, having escaped, that word escaped, carries with it the idea of successfully fleeing captivity, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The word corruption means degeneration, decomposition. It has a smell that's not a savory smell about it. Have you ever smelled something dying or having died? It's enough to make you sick, isn't it? That's the world. And it's understandable why the world is against God. Who is the ruler of this world? 1 John 5, 19 says, the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. Satan is the ruler of this world and he hates God and consequently he hates us. God is against us is what happens to people who don't know the Lord. If you notice in conversation with some of your non-Christian friends, perhaps, when bad things happen to them, they're so quick to say, why would God do this to me? God is a bully. He's uncaring. If he cares, he's not all-powerful, as the Bible says. Well, the world gives us a longing for things that hurt us and drag us farther away from God. By nature, 
the world is corrupt, isn't it? But we are by nature corrupt before we receive Christ. That is true of us. Going back to the Garden of Eden, in the beginning, Adam was perfect. He had the life of God dwelling in his spirit. He had unbroken fellowship with God the Father. But then he and Eve gave way to temptation. They desired something other than God. The serpent representing Satan was so clever. He knew the way that he could get to Adam and Eve was to say, if you will eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, then you will be like God. That is exactly what got the devil kicked out of heaven. If you want to read about it, look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. He got too big for his britches, and that's what he wanted to get men and women to do, and he accomplished it with our first father and mother in the Garden of Eden. And consequently, from that day forward, every child was born with a sinful nature, a dead spot at the very core of his or her being, dead because of trespasses and sin, a nature that was by its very nature opposed to God. Before we come to know Christ, we don't desire to know Him or be like Him. We forget God. We don't pray. We don't care anything about the Bible. We can't understand the Bible. One of the sure signs that a person does not know Christ is if they say, you know, I just don't understand the Bible. I've known people who didn't even get out of high school who came to Christ. Their eyes were open. They gave their lives to Christ, and they became connoisseurs of the Word of God. They love the Word of God. They read the Word of God. They meditate on the Word of God. They memorize the Word of God. They live, more importantly, by the will of God revealed in the Word of God. They understand it. The understanding comes from the Holy Spirit who has come to indwell us. The gospel of Jesus Christ shows me my corruption and the corruption within the world for sure. And it creates a longing for escape. I had the most marvelous thing happen to me yesterday. I had received a call probably two weeks ago from a young man, and I didn't recognize his name. It really bothers me when I don't remember people's names. I have a fetish for remembering people's names. And so he called me, and I was trying to put a face with a name. Do you ever have that kind of situation? I find myself in that place many times these days. And so he said, I want to get baptized. I said, okay, can we meet? I want to talk to him face to face. And he said, yes. And I said, well, can you meet with me? And I said, yesterday, Saturday. Can you meet with me on Saturday? This was late last week. And he said, I have to ask my mother. Well, listening to his voice, he had a very deep voice. And I thought, he's a man in his 20s, he said, alike, but he was still in high school. Amazing. And so I said, okay, your mother can bring you tomorrow? He said, I think so, let me ask. And sure enough, they came, and 
I heard a story that just boggled my mind. It shouldn't have. But this young man, without any external influence as far as I could tell listening to him, began to want to read the Bible. He began by reading Matthew, then he went to Luke, then he went to John, then he went to the book of Acts. And as I listened to him tell his story and I began to interact with him, it became abundantly clear this man had been born again from reading God's Word. And he was so pleasant, his demeanor, his joy overflowed. He was not putting anything on for me, but I could tell it was genuine when we would look together at places in the Bible which confirm a person's salvation and security in the Lord. The good news is when people really come alive by hearing the gospel, they become like God. I must see myself as corrupt before I come to Christ, and the world is dragging me down. So as we finish today, in the last several minutes, how can I escape the corruption in the world which is dominated by lust? You know what the word lust means? Most of, it associate, most of us associate it with lusting after someone of the opposite sex, sexual sin. But the word that's used 38 times in the New Testament, three times it's actually used positively. In the book of Luke 22:15, it's used positively. In the book of 1 Thessalonians 2:17, it's used positively. So it's not a word that is always negative in its usage. Most of the time in the New Testament it is, but it means strong desire. So how can I escape? If you are here listening, if you're in this audience listening today, and you sense that maybe you don't really know God, where do you begin? You begin by seeking the forgiveness of God. And this passage talks about how God has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. Do you know the promises of God that must have been in Peter's mind when he makes this statement? were all of them, of course, but particularly those having to do with God, the Savior revealed in Jesus Christ. It has to do with our salvation. And where does that begin? Well, we need forgiveness. In John chapter 3, the Bible says, Jesus said actually, He said about Himself, the Son of Man came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So if you believe, you're no longer under condemnation. Isn't that amazing? Just like that, when a man or a woman knows that she or he is a sinner, comes to Christ, humbles himself or herself under God and Jesus, and asks Jesus to forgive, he does exactly that. Okay, I agree with the corruption of my nature and the world. What can I do about it? What can I do about it? Once we're forgiven, what's next? We have a long life to live. I've been a follower of Christ for half a century. That is a long time. Unbelievable. So what have I to do between the time of receiving forgiveness through Jesus and the time of my departure from earth? Am I just to sit around twiddling my thumbs, come to a place like this, 
hear someone talk for 35 or 40 minutes, hopefully get a little something out of it, check that box and go home until the next time I come to a place like this. What can I do about it? Well, we're partakers of the divine nature according to the precious promises of God. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he promised and will he not fulfill it? Do you know that God is bound by his own integrity to fulfill a promise he makes to us? That's amazing, isn't it? He is bound by that. Listen to what John 1.12 says, But as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. We have to be born of God. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, this is what that same man John wrote. He said, that which is born of God, whatever is born of God, we would say whoever is born of God has overcome the world. And how have we overcome the world? We have put our faith in Jesus Christ alone, the Son of God, for our salvation. This is the message of the gospel. And this is the great promise that the Lord gives us. And we become partakers of His nature. Amazing to think about that. In 1 Peter, the same writer, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, he said, We have been born again, not of perishable but imperishable seed, through the living and abiding Word of God. We have been born again. We were dead, and now we have been raised to new life. We have the very presence of the Lord. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What can I do about it? I need to read the Word of God, especially the promises associated with who I am in Christ and who He is, more importantly. We need to listen to Jesus, our Master, whose kingdom is not of this world. We need to listen to Him when He says in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will ask the Father. He will send another helper just like me, the Spirit of truth. That same Spirit of truth, Jesus says in chapter 14, will teach you all things and remind you of all that I have said to you. And then in chapter 16, he says, this spirit of truth will guide you in the truth. We have living in us, if we know Christ, the spirit of the living God, the one who filled Jesus fully, he himself being God. He lives in us. And He reproduces the life of Christ through us. We need humility. We have to look no further than the Holy Spirit of God. We need to be equal thinkers in terms of treating other people like ourselves or, as I've said before today, better than ourselves. We're just like Christ. Christ lives in us by the Spirit of God. Ezekiel 36 26 and 27, God speaking of 
the new covenant that was instituted by Jesus. He says, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Remember when we came into this world, before we knew Christ, we were dead cold inside. And then what did the Lord do? He gave us a new heart. He gave us himself. He came to indwell us. He indwells us by his spirit. He goes on to say in that same section of scripture, I will send my spirit and he will cause you, listen carefully, he will cause you in whom he dwells to be careful to keep what God wants you to keep. The very presence of the divine nature in us. We're not divine. We're receptacles. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in us, whom we have from God. But he lives in us and he wants to reproduce his life through us. We're in a battle, aren't we? We're told that by Paul. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that realm is obviously controlled by Satan. It's the worldly realm, the prince of the power of the air. But what we need to understand is we're not left to our own devices. We have been given the power of the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Listen, friends, the world is aching for a demonstration among God's people, a demonstration of the life of Jesus Christ that is different from the world. Not something that wows people, but something that changes people's lives because it's the very life of Christ in us, reaching out through us. And we can be more than conquerors over the enemy. Sometimes I feel tired, weary, and doing good. Sometimes I say, will I ever make it, Lord? The older I get, the more I ask that question. I know I'm going to heaven, not because of anything good in me, because of the promises of God. I know I'm headed there. I'm tempted from time to time to put her in cruise control. How about you? Just kind of glide on in. Well, there's no such thing as gliding in the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. We trust the Holy Spirit to change us, to reproduce the life of Christ in us. And what we need to realize that there's coming a day for me and you, me sooner than you, I'm sure, where this life will be over and the Lord will come to receive me to himself that where I am, there he may be also. That's going to be a glorious day. But meanwhile, what are we going to do? We want to be the church, don't we? We are the body of Christ. We are Christ's representation to the world, which is in a terrible state. And that world will not get any better by our yelling and screaming at them about how bad they are. They are sinners. They don't accept that. They don't want to believe it. They won't believe it. But what will change their lives is the person of Christ in us, living through us. When your life is over and mine's over, listen to what Paul says about it in 1 Corinthians 15, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, 
Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's good news, isn't it? Praise the Lord for who He is for sure. Be confident of this, my brother and sister in Christ. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you're discouraged about how you have lived or not lived your life in Christ, take courage. Believe what God says. Be a man or a woman who embraces the promises of God, embraces the divine nature that you have become a party to, that the Spirit of God lives in you and ask Him to fill you and to control you. If I were to reduce this talk down to two basic ideas, it would simply be that it highlights our utter dependency upon the Lord. I take seriously what Jesus says. I hope you do too. Where he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. But through me, you can do anything I give you to do. It's awesome. The second thing would be God's dependability. We've got a dependable God. He is a great God. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can always depend upon our God. Do we know God? Do we like God? Can we say we are partakers of the divine nature? If so, our lives will be used to correct and convert this world. I love this nation. I'm an American. I love the world. I've had opportunity to travel to other countries, not as extensively as you have perhaps, but wherever I go, there are people to be loved. They're made in the image of God. Let us make a commitment. It begins with me. It begins with you individually to say, Lord, I want to know you more. I want to trust you more completely. And Lord, I want to be like you. I don't want to be satisfied with being a mediocre Christian. I want to be like you, Lord. And the good news is he's promised that is our heritage as we trust in him. Would you bow your head and pray? Father, we do thank you for the truth that's lodged in these two verses of Scripture, we thank you, Father, that you have seen fit to give us eternal life, to regenerate us, help us to walk by faith going forward and not by sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I sign off today, thank you for being with us. I would like to take note that next Sunday... Actually, Saturday, we're going to be meeting together again. We're all looking forward to that after a three-week hiatus. We're going to be together next Saturday and next Sunday. And the elders believe God wants us to wear masks unless you have some sort of physical ailment that would prevent that. Your doctor has said it's injurious to your health. We're going to let, ask you to wear a mask. You might be irritated by that. I don't like masks any more than anybody else does. But remember what we learned a few weeks ago from Romans chapter 14, that for the sake of our brothers in Christ who might be uneasy 
about being around people not wearing masks. This is our opportunity to serve them, isn't it? To do what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 14. So please come prepared to worship next weekend and join me as I'll have my mask on. God bless you.